Clark Pinnock tells the story of a man, he's a philosopher, he tells the story of a man that he um, was convinced that he was dead. And so what, what um, the family members, they were concerned about this man convinced that he's dead. And so um, they decided to take him into a psychiatrist. And so the psychiatrist, after meeting with him a couple of times, decided the way he was going to convince this man that he wasn't dead is that he was going to work off a simple premise that, that dead people don't bleed. Now, it sounds a little morbid, but that's, the, that's what he decided. So he ended up showing him studies, and they watch videos, and goes through this process. And finally, after a couple of weeks, the, the guy decides that, okay, I'll, I'll admit that dead people don't bleed. And then right after that, the, um, the psychiatrist stuck him with a needle and pulled out some blood. And he, he reacts uh, overwhelmingly and goes, oh, oh, oh my goodness, I, I guess dead people do bleed, is what he, what he says. You know, the Apostle Paul in the book of Colossians is going to emphasize a really simple point that's quite profound in our faith. And that is that he says to us, while we're dead in our transgressions, that, that we have the privilege of being risen with Christ and that that dead people don't sin. It's basically the premise that he, he uses in the text today. As we continue in Colossians chapter 3, we're, we're going to see Paul saying basically, why are you returning back to those things that were a part of your life? Because when you were set free, when you were a slave to sin, you're not that anymore. That, that you've been bought with a price and that you have the hope of glory. You have the privilege of being set free from the, the laws of sin and death. And so he, he articulates in a beautiful way in Colossians 3, especially in these first few verses, this, this description that says basically, why would you go back? I can't help but, but think of the imagery of the Israelites as they had less, left the slavery of Egypt and, and they started to grumble and they started to say, we, we, we want to go back to, to that reality. I have another image in my mind of when we were in Southern California, we had this rule that we'd say, and that was, you didn't get green unless you paid for it. And what that meant was that it was, we were close to the desert. And basically, if you did not have a sprinkler system running, you did not have a green lawn. And I'm a good Ohio boy, so I had all kinds of sprinkler systems. It was pretty impressive. You would have been impressed. But what would inevitably happen would be that when we'd come to visit Ohio, where it's just green naturally, thank goodness, right? is that we'd come home and there'd usually be one sprinkler that was just shooting straight up, you know? And that whole section of our lawn would be completely dead, right? Because it, it hadn't been watered. In fact, one of our neighbors got so tired of that that they put AstroTurf in their front lawn. I am not kidding about that. You know, you know for us, this image of going from death to life, that that we no longer are a slave to sin is one that the Apostle Paul wants to emphasize for us in this, this powerful description in the book of Colossians chapter three. He's also going to give us a, a powerful way that we can have victory over sin in our life. And it, it's a very simple concept of sanctification that we put off, we take off, and we put on, we take off the things that are destroying us and we put on the things that give us life and hope. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to Colossians chapter 3. We're going to begin reading in verse 1. He says, if then, if you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds, literally Allow yourself to be overwhelmed by the fact that there, these things are above, not on the things that are on earth. Verse 3, for you have died, 
then your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. And that deserves a hearty amen. That there's a part of this that we go, that's how it works. That we're clothed in the righteousness of Christ. I love this idea that he's our reference point. That, that, that it says that we ought to not set our eyes on the things of this earth, but we set our minds on things above. I read a study one time about hikers. I don't know if you like to hike. I love to hike. And they did this study where they took away their maps and their compasses and their GPSs, and they stuck them in this, this ravine area and basically said, get out on your own. And they had GPS trackers that they were able to see where they went. And it was fascinating to me because there were a few of them that you could see the line and they, they go out and, they're and then they come back and they go right back to where they were and then they go back around and they go. And I totally have felt that way when I've been lost as a hiker before. And then there's some that it's these Z tracks and they're going and then they kind of come back around. But then there's a few lines where they go straight out and it's, it's amazing. And what they found out was that those individuals that made it out, were ones that found an outside reference point, whether it was the tip of a mountain or whether it was a certain star, that they, they found a reference point and it allowed them to be able to get through this challenge. And for so many of us, this, this description of what it means for us to, to have a true north reference point it really does just the opposite of what, when Paul says, do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. There's, there's a component of this, of he's saying there's a way to live that is just this constant cycle of, we would say, sin and death. But there's a way to experience your life that is really, truly life-giving. It's beautiful. It's profound. We've been set free. It's, it's fun in the text, or interesting in the text that it says, in verse four, he says, when Christ, who is your life, Christ is not just supposed to be a part of our life. Now, have you guys seen this before where somebody has like fishing is life, right? Or football is life. Or I saw one the other day, it said cats are life. Can you believe that? Who, who would wear that shirt? One of you? Uh, cats are life, yeah. The description is basically what Paul's saying here, and he's saying that, that Christ ought to be the most important thing about us, right? It ought to be our life, that, that it ought to eclipse pretty much everything else in our lives. And, and we've been studying this in Colossians, if you've been going through this together with us, this is this beautiful truth that we keep hearing, and it's, it's, it's because of his resurrection that you and I get to look forward to our own bodily resurrection. His resurrection makes your and my resurrection assured. See this in verse one, we see this in verse three. It says that, that, that we have this hope that we will appear, not hope, we have this promise that we will appear with him in glory. Now in the context of this verse, if you'll look ahead with me to Colossians 3, verse 6, there's a tremendously painful message here. And the Apostle Paul's going to describe sins, and he's going to describe many specific sins, sins that many of us in this room struggle with. The, the reality is they're the sins that are so easily to be entangled in in our culture. Someone has said when it comes to these types of sins, you're either fighting them or you're failing in them. And there, there's a sense of that when we see this list, but in the middle of it in chapter um, 3, verse 6, this statement is said. It says, on account of these, the wrath of God 
is coming. These, these horribly difficult words to read are so true and they're so important for us to understand today. Now, I want to remind you about the character of the God that we serve. For those of us who are Christ followers, that there's, there's a reminder of his character that his desire is that no one would perish, that he came to seek and to save that which was lost. But we're also told that he has also made a provision for individuals to be clothed in the righteousness of Christ through the death of the Lord Jesus Christ. And for those of us who are believers, we have the hope and promise of what I, I, what's been called the Bema, or the judgment seat of Christ. And in Romans 14, 10 through 12, 1 Corinthians 3, 10 through 4, 5, 2 Corinthians 5, 1 through 10. This, this Bema or judgment seat of Christ is a time where, where we are judged by God in heaven, but the outcome of it would be like attending a really good graduation ceremony. I, I don't know if you, have you ever been to a good graduation ceremony? There is such a thing. I've been to a few. And what you find yourself doing there is you find yourself celebrating in what others have done. You also are go through a process where you yourself may be honored, but, but all of this is to the glory of God. And in this judgment seat, which is a promise will happen to all of us, this Bema is one for the Christ follower where we stand back and we say, God, to God be the glory. And it's a celebration. But there's another judgment See, that is described in scripture. It's described articulately in Revelation chapter 20, verse 11, and it's known as the great white throne judgment. And this is described in detail as a time period where individuals are judged before the Lord and ultimately the reality of their name being written in the book of life or their name being blotted out of the book of life is the reality that there will be individuals that on that day will not be able to say that they are clothed in the righteousness of Christ. Now, I, I say to you that that is both frightening to me and it's devastating, but it is still from a God who loves his people. In fact, that is why the Lord says that he came to seek and to save that which was lost. It's why we look at the work of the cross in such a specific way to say that he chose to send his son so that we could enter into being clothed in the righteousness of Christ. And it's also why I'm proud to be a part of the Christian Missionary Alliance. This denomination that we're a part of believes that the name of the Lord Jesus Christ is so significant that it's worth us giving sacrificially to those around the world that have yet to hear the name of Christ. Can you imagine for a moment not ever having heard the name of Christ or to know the hope of glory of the Lord Jesus Christ? Our denomination as a denomination, it is not the largest denomination in the world, but it gives more money to missions than any other denomination in the world because we believe that every human being that we interact with is an eternal human being. And that there is a judgment that's coming and that we desperately want to do everything in our power for every person, including every person in this room, to have their name written and secure in the book of life. There's, there's a component of this that you and I, there's great news in the midst of this, that as a Christ follower, we get to anticipate our glorification, new body. We don't have to struggle with sin anymore, that we have the privilege of being in the presence of the living God. I look forward to that day so much because I recognize that, that God is not only going to give me access to his presence, but he's going to perfect our soul, our bodies. We're going to reign with Christ. It's beautiful. It says it 
at the end. When Christ, verse four, when Christ who is your life appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. We've been emphasizing this, Christ in us, the hope of glory. In Hebrew, in Romans chapter 8, 31, it describes this glorification process. It's really cool. And after it describes it, it says this. Have you heard this verse? It says, if God is for you, then who can be against you? It's a great phrase, isn't it? That's the, that's the hope that we have, right? But it leads to the second point. The first point was the right perspective is essential for us as Christ followers. The second point this morning is you and I must destroy those things in our life that would destroy us. I, I believe wholeheartedly that every time I've taken God at his word in my life, I've been blessed. The 11 things that the Apostle Paul lists out here, warning the church and Colossae, is that he knows people. He understands the, the truth of, of Romans 12 that says that we should no longer conform to the pattern of this world. He, he knows the pattern of this world. Some of this is gonna be sexuality stuff. Some of this is gonna be the way we use our tongue. Some of this is gonna be the way we deal with truth. But he knows people and he's gonna say, you want nothing to do, you're dead to that stuff. In fact, I believe that as we watch sin, Romans, Romans 1 teaches that there's, there's a death process that sin leads us to ultimately. And so there's a component of this that he warns us to destroy or to mortify, to put to death those things that would potentially destroy us. He says this in verse 5. He says, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. Again, conforming to the pattern of this world. And then he lists these 11 things very specifically. Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these, you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with his practices. He's saying, you died to these things, so why are you living in them? These are no longer a part of your Christian life. Do you remember in Matthew 18, the Lord Jesus said, if your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. There's a component of him saying, we take sin extremely seriously. And it's important for us to remember, I, I've been emphasizing through this Colossian series, the deceiver who wants to steal, kill, and devour. But as a Christ follower, we have really three enemies. It's the world, it's our flesh, and it's the devil. And, and it's sometimes hard to decipher which one of these things is, is at the root of what we're wrestling with. But all three of those happen. Sometimes it just flows from our own unhealthy appetites. Sometimes it flows from Satan's temptations. But these enemies are ones that he's saying, you've got victory. You're on the winning team. We got this. But you have to act like you have been set free because you've not only been forgiven, but you've been set free. There's a fascinating word in the middle of verse five. You might not have caught it. He, or at the end of verse five, he says, he says, these things are idolatry. I don't know about you, but when I grew up, the first time that I heard the idea of idolatry, I had this image of like Zeus and I had these little statues and why in the world would anyone worship something inanimate like that? It just seems so silly, right? But then I read a book by Tim Keller and it's called Counterfeit Gods. And what he describes idolatry as, and I think it's a very accurate thing, he says it could be really good things in our life that 
We make an ultimate thing, that, that it takes a little different place in our life in such a way that here he's talking about sexual things as potentially being idols. He talks about words. He talks about things that distract us from God. But Keller puts it this way, and I think it's tremendously helpful. He says, an idol is anything more important to you than God. Anything that absorbs your heart and your imagination more than God. Anything you seek to give you what only God can give. Anything that is so central and essential to your life that you should, should you lose it, your life would feel hardly worth living. Later in his book, he says, the human heart is an idol factory that takes good things like a successful career, love, material possessions, even family, and turns them into ultimate things. Our hearts deify them as the center of our lives because we think they can give us significance and security and safety and fulfillment if we attain them. I, when I heard that definition, I started to think about the things in my life that are good things, but that have the potential of becoming ultimate things. And the way he challenges us to test them, you've heard the, the, the verse that says, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Like, that there's a part of this, that we worship these things. That there's, there's objects that are a part of our life that can become so important to us that we find ourselves depending on them for our security. I, I think it's helpful for us to, to ask. We, we just had beautiful worship. Thank you for taking us to the throne of grace. Can you imagine that those false gods or the smaller G gods become things that we worship in our life. Sexuality can be something we worship uh, or wealth can be something that we worship. Our families even can be. It doesn't have to be bad things. I like the way Hendrickson puts it. He says, every sin is basically selfishness, the worship of self instead of the worship of God, the substitution of self for Christ in one's affections. So, so we take what God's given us, and, and, it, and, and while it was a gift, that, that ultimately it becomes something that it becomes an object of our worship. And the impact that that can have on our lives is, is tremendously devastating. I think it's helpful for us as we approach this list of things. And I want to point out a few things from the text that on these 11 that he gives us, he is ultimately going to speak of some things that are tremendous gifts from God. But I want you to really catch this, that, that often when, when sin creeps into this, that we start to take for ourselves what God hasn't given us. So even on the first one, it's the word immorality. Greek, it's the word we get the word pornea from or porn, porn, pornography from. And it, it's important to hear this definition. It refers to every kind of sexual activity that's outside of God's definition of marriage every kind of sexual activity. And so what it means is that people are taking or choosing to take what God hasn't given them. Later, he talks about impurity. That's adding something that contaminates, that, that, that there's a component of this description that's hard for me to hear, but it's, it's to accept that we take what God has blessed us with and we add something to it that ultimately has the potential of contaminating it or hindering it. That, that's the same word. That contamination word is where we get the word adultery from. We adulterated it. It's corrupted. It takes something good that's a blessing and turns it into something that, that the deceiver wants to use to steal, to kill, and to devour. The third is passion. This is uncontrolled desire, an insatiable burning appetite. 
The fourth is evil desire, reaching out for some forbidden thing to satisfy. The fifth is covetousness. This is the desire to have more with disregard to others, wanting what God has not given you. I like the way G.B. Card puts it. I think this describes our culture so well. He says, greed is the arrogant and ruthless assumption that all other persons and things exist for one's own benefit. That's our culture, right? To, to consume and enjoy. That's what we're encouraged to do. We're told that we deserve to consume and enjoy at every turn of our lives. And here we see that the way it's described by the Apostle Paul is, is greed. It's, it's snatching something. It's taking for ourselves. You, my little brother, when we were at the beach last week, we, or two weeks ago, he and I, um, he was sharing with me that someone had gone to buy something on Craigslist from somebody. And, and when he got there, they ultimately just gave it to him. It was like a $100 item. And and I've no, we've, we've taken this same tent thing on vacation a couple of years in a row. And every time we talk about it, like he almost tears up. It's like amazing. Like he says that, you know, we just went there. We talked to the folks and heard we're believers. And then just kind of, and then at one point they're like, hey, just take the tent. And, and Josh and I, we were, we're talking about it. And I, and I said, Josh, you know, what, what would it look like for, for us to be those kinds of people that do that for other people? Like we, you're bringing this up because it was so meaningful for you, someone else's generosity. And, and as he and I talked about it, it was, it was helpful for us to process that this idea of covetousness or that, that I, I want to hold tight to everything that I have, that, that part of the antidote to that is that we're people who are just saying like, this is never mine. Like I think of my car, my house, my, the things that I would even put my, my name on or that I'd, I'd call my own. And someone has said that when we do this, we go from having our possessions own us to placing them in the right place in our lives. And I, I just can't help but think that, that that family that blessed our family with this gift or the, the thing that they, they did something that taught us a tremendous lesson about stuff and about what it means to possess, what it means to covet, what it means to have greed Later, he talks about these words that are tremendously hard, anger, a settled attitude of hostility, wrath, a destructive outburst of passion, malice, ill will, a vicious disposition that results in tearing others down. I, I believe in Northeast Ohio that these three are, are pretty significant temptations for us. I think it's, it's easy for us to be so frustrated with someone that we don't love them enough to speak truth and love to them, but instead we just let it simmer inside. It festers inside of us. And it comes, I had one guy say to me, I've run out of te- cheeks to turn when it comes to my neighbor, you know? And, and, and there's a part of this that it, it becomes such a part of our nature that we, we tolerate this anger that's festering instead of the antidote to that being truth and love. What, what the apostle Paul is saying is that that's not who you are. You're dead to that stuff. That's, that's the pattern of this world. And he uses another word that's profound. He says, that we ought to not be blasphemers or slander. The Greek word for slander is blasphemia. It's insulting, injurious, malicious speech. And I think we do that really well behind each other's backs. Winston Churchill was known for his clever words and one of his fellow politicians, Lady Astor, on one occasion, she found him in an elevator rather drunk. And with cutting disgust, she sniped to Winston Churchill. She said, Sir Winston, you are drunk. To which he replied, My lady, you are ugly, and tomorrow I will be sober. (laughs) 
so, so then, so then we're told later. Uh, we're told later that she once said to him, "If I were your wife, I'd put arsenic in your tea," which is not very nice. And he said, "If I were your husband, I would drink it." <laughs> um, if if we're honest, I'm joking. But if if we're honest, we know that when when words are described as being like the spark that sets a forest fire on fire, that we we know that words matter. We know that our tongue is as powerful of a thing that God has given us. And we're told that we have to learn to tame the tongue. But you know what scares me about the tongue? I'll be honest with you. And, and I want to make sure that I'm communicating to you with all 11 of these, that all 11 of these are temptations for me in my life in varying degrees. But this one in particular, that there's, there's a component of the tongue where, where we're told in God's word that he says, he says, out of the overflow of your heart, what's it say? So your mouth speaks. And I think that's one of the scariest things about the tongue is that, is that these things that are inside of us, if we haven't dealt with them, that they have the potential of boiling, boiling over and doing a tremendous amount of damage. And I know that that is a temptation for me at times, that, that I can use words to be destructive, disruptive, painful. He also uh, ties our words into what I think is another thing that's sometimes common in our culture, and that's obscene talk, dirty, disgraceful, dishonorable speech. Jeremiah used to say, or said in scripture about his generation, he says, they've forgotten how to blush. It's an interesting statement, isn't it? That they, they, they don't even know that it's so wrong that they shouldn't be using those words. Boy, our culture's fallen into that. The last one that he says is lying. And this is deceptive, distorting, untruthful speech. And I, and, I, and I look at this and you think about the way that that is a common pattern in our culture to make our own selves look better, to try to prop ourselves up. But for all of these, all 11 of these, these warnings that he has, there, there's a couple things that I, I think are really quite positive. The first one is that, that he, he warns us to, to kind of build in these, these firewalls. I like the way that H.A. Ironside puts it. He says, when it comes to the, the words malice and wrath and anger, he says, we have three generations of sin here. Anger, cherished, begets wrath. And wrath, if not judged, begets malice. And in other words, there's a progression with these. When it comes to the appetites, the appetites, remember my sprinkler system, it doesn't have to be fed, right? It can be let to, left to die. And there's a component of this that Paul's just saying to us, we can build some firewalls in our life. We can stop feeding these sins in our life. And, and let me just celebrate something with you. If you look at that list, will you look at it in your notes for a second, those 11 things? If you look at that list, an individual who gets this right, who honors God in these 11 areas, they are going to radiate in our culture, right? Because, because our culture gets so many of these things wrong that a person who does this right at their factory job or in the hospital or, or in, in retirement as they're raising their grandkids, as, as a person who gets this right, if we do these 11 things well, according to what God says, if we reject them, if we kill these off in our lives, we are going to shine we are going to allow our light radiate in the darkness. We're going to be salt and light in the dark world. I, 
I uh, had the privilege of doing a number of weddings, especially at Grace, a marriage and family pastor, the church we served at before. And I got to sit down with every couple that got buried by any of our pastors at Grace. And I loved these conversations. Often it was delightful to get to know these couples. Many of them were believers when they came in, had the chance to share the gospel. And often, uh, every time, I'd have the chance to talk about sexual purity with these couples. Now, for some of them, uh, it was an area where they had made some great decisions. They were doing great. For others, in fact, in one in particular, that, that this is kind of shocking news. Like they, they were newer believers. They came into my office. I presented this message basically saying, every time I've taken God at his word, I've been blessed. And in this area of sexual purity, God's got a great plan for it. He designed sexual intimacy for the confines of marriage. Are you guys like, this is awkward? Um, can you tell it wasn't awkward for me? Willing to talk about it. So we talk about it. And this one couple, this precious couple, in the middle of the meeting, they're like, we've never heard this before. We've never heard that people would, would um, you know, make this decision and kind of do this God's way. And they're like, we want to do this. We're going we're gonna to make this commitment from now until we get married. And so, you know, we'd focused on the wedding and I had met with him a couple other times, but, but honestly, it uh, might be news to you, but we don't really know pastors wise, like what happens outside of these walls too often. And I really didn't assume anything about them negative, but when it came to the day of their wedding day, the bride pulled me aside and she said, Pastor Sean, you will never guess what happened. We, we made this decision. Um, this, this wedding day has been such a celebration for us, but we made this decision, and then when people asked us, I think the one had moved out, and they were living together, and they're like, all our friends were like, why would you ever do this? And she, the bride said to me, and I can just remember how she was writing, she's, I've had the chance to share the gospel with all kinds of people, our friends, my parents don't know, like, she just was writing, because, because she had decided to say, all right, as a Christ follower, that, that I don't have to do this the way that the world does it. And and ultimately, what ended up coming out of that was something tremendously beautiful. So Paul puts it this way in Colossians 3. If you have your Bibles, glance down with me to verses 9 and 10. He says, since you've taken off your old self with its practices, like this is a clothing image, right? You've taken it off and put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge, in the knowledge and the image of its creator, this description is just a very positive one. And it's a, a description of sanctification. that we put off, then we put on. We replace those places in our life that were full of destructive temptations. And we just really, truly take God and his word. I want to close with this experience that, that we had that was fascinating. We were in Hawaii several years ago. Ali was with me. And um, we, we were on vacation with my parents. And we were at a beach, and um, we had had lunch, and then we left from there. We dipped our feet in the water there where we were at, and then um, we went to lunch. And as we were, or we, we drove away, and as we were driving away, we saw a number of ambulances go by um, until something serious happened, but didn't think that much about it. And then the next day, we flew home, flew back to California, and, and one of the pastors at the church said, did you guys hear about the shark attack? And um, what we would find out was that those ambulances were going at the time of day where we were just at, just minutes before, to where a man who was swimming in the water, we were there, that he had a, a tremendously um, devastating shark attack. But, but the story, so I was curious about it and did some more research. <laughs> I was really curious about it, you know, but did some more research and the man survived. And he would say he grew up surfing and he had been trained that when it comes to a shark attack, that one of the vulnerable places on a shark is its eye. 
And the story went that he, in the midst of being hit on his legs, that he grabbed the eye of the shark and it ended up saving his life. It's a terrible story, right? But, but one of the things that was profound about that as I read it was that he had decided before he got himself into that situation that that's what he'd do. That's the quote about him. Like I had decided if this ever happened to me that this is what I'd do. And the Apostle Paul's asking you and I to do that same thing when it comes to choosing to mortify our flesh. He, he's not ignorant enough to, to believe that you're not going to be exposed to this. They, they were living in a sex-saturated culture. They were living in a culture full of lies. They were living in a culture full of deception. There's so many things. This isn't new stuff. But he just said, Christ follower, be someone who makes this decision beforehand. And what, when you do that, what you do is you can find yourself going from death to life, Right? that you can find yourself being set free from some of the temptations that have the ability to wreak havoc in our broken world. And so today, I want to remind you, brothers and sisters, of a very simple message, but one of hope, that even in the midst of a reality where we have the good news of the gospel and the bad news of the gospel, that for the Christ follower, there's a, a reminder to you that you have the privilege of being clothed in the righteousness of Christ. For those of you who are not Christ followers in this room, I just want to remind you that those promises of being a slave to sin are a reality for the non-believer, but that he came to seek and to save that which was lost. And that there is a message of hope, that the message of hope is not just that you need to be good, but it is a message that says, Christ in us, the hope of glory. Amen? that that is where we find our joy and that's where we find our hope. And the Apostle Paul, in the midst of this, while warning us of these 11 temptations for us, says that we don't have to live in them. We don't have to be destroyed by them. But in Christ, we can experience the true hope of glory. I'm going to invite the worship team to come forward and like to pray. Lord, we love you and we thank you for your word. And just thank you for your knowledge of us and the way that you, you know our tendencies, you know our appetites, you know the things about our, our culture and our life that, that would be things that have the potential of stealing away glory from you. And I pray for Hope Church. I pray that we would be people who, with these, these 11 things, that they would, would have no part of our lives, Lord, that we would be able to radiate like light in a dark world, Lord, that you would be glorified and that it truly is Christ in us, the hope of glory, that we've been bought with a price, that we are no longer a slave to fear. We love you. We thank you for this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.